0: Welcome to this Bible study on the concept of recapitulation. I presented this at St. Ephraim recently during the Lenten Retreat, and I'm re-recording it here because I I only managed to cover half of it while I was there. What is recapitulation? I'm going to cover this concept, which may not be familiar to some of you. Then I'll go into moral recapitulation, which is really the gist of this whole presentation. And then we'll get talking about the first station that is how we can reflect on the garden as a pattern for our own soul and i'll talk about q a later my name is Naji Malwad i've done a bunch of studies uh, you can find them available on corbono.com and every year i've been asked to uh, lead a lenten retreat for the uh, youth group and this year like i said I decided to focus on this concept which I think is very important but not very well known. So what is Recapitulation? Recapitulation is a concept that we find indicated in Ephesians um, chapter 1 verse 9 through 11. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And him according to the purpose of of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Unite can actually be translated as sum up, which is literally rendered to recapitulate in Latin. Now, you've probably heard the word let's recap. That's a shorthand form for recapitulation. So to recap is to summarize, but also to repeat. So fundamentally, St. Paul in this little bit here is telling us that the mystery of God's will, the Father's will, which he had set forth in Christ was as a plan to recapitulate all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, according to the purpose of the Father's will, who accomplishes all things, according to the counsel of the Father's will. So fundamentally, the idea then is for Christ to recapitulate. Well, recapitulate what exactly? And how does he recapitulate things? St. Saint Athanasius, Saint, um, uh, Athanasius tells us, That Christ recapitulates all things by getting right what Adam got wrong. So, here is Saint Irenaeus. I said Saint Irenaeus, I meant Saint Irenaeus. He has therefore in his work of recapitulation summed up all things. Same language used in Ephesians, because he's really commenting on that. Both waging war against our enemy and crushing him who had at the beginning led us away, captives, in Adam. The enemy would not have been fairly vanquished unless it it had been a man born of woman who conquered him. And therefore does the Lord profess himself to be the son of man, comprising in himself that original man out of whom the woman was fashioned, in order that, as our species went down to death through a vanquished man, so we may ascend to life again through a victorious one. And as through a man death received the palm of victory against us, so again, by a man, we may receive the poem against death. So Christ, re, he, he essentially takes on the life of a man and lives like Adam, but he gets it right. He does it right where Adam failed. That's the gist of what St. Irenaeus is saying here. So Christ chooses to come and be born as an infant, and grow up as a man and live as a man in order to do what Adam did not manage to do. That's the fundamental idea behind recapitulation, is to relive the life of Adam but do it right. The ultimate goal of Christ's work of solidarity with humankind is to make humankind divine. Of Jesus, St. Irenaeus says, he became what we are that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. That's a notion that is dear and near to a number of the Eastern fathers. So I had mentioned earlier St. Athanasius. Here he is, St. Athanasius, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Augustine, St. Maximus the Confessor. Many of these fathers have retaken on that notion. In the Orthodox theology, as well in the Eastern churches, it is viewed as... Theosis, deification, the idea is that Christ has taken on what we are, humanity, that he may, he might bring us to be even what he is himself, divine. And uh, in the Maronite liturgy, for instance, this is a prayer that is, um, that the priest prays during elevation, the second elevation, you have united, O Lord, your divinity with our humanity, our humanity with your divinity. You have given us what, we are, what you are and you have become what we are, basically. I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. But it's that same idea that in this recapit- recapitulative effort of Christ, he takes on human life in order to bring us, all of us, through the solidarity with human nature into a divine life. And that's not something that, and I'm I'm, I'm certain many of you are familiar with this idea that Christ's salvific word work is to save us and bring us into divine life. But there's more to the notion of recapitulation. So, I'll get to that in a minute. But first, historical recapitulation is a record of the interventions of the incarnate word for mankind, which we know as salvation history, culminating in the incarnation, passion, resurrection. So, St. Irenaeus regarded all biblical events as mysteries centered and depending on Christ. So, for instance, um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Well, we see that as a pattern of the sacrifice, that the father sacrificing Christ. Um, when, um, <clears throat> um, obviously, Adam facing um, the, the devil is... Uh, um, is Reminds us of Christ being tempted in the desert, and so on, and so forth. So, many of the Old Testament passages are mysteries centered on Christ. Christ Himself tells um, Nicodemus that, uh, for just as the serpent was raised, when Moses raised the serpent, so that when the Son of Man is raised, He will attract all people to Himself. So, Christ saw in the serpent being the serpent of bronze that Moses raised in the wilderness, a mystery pointing to him. So, particularly the primordial mysteries, meaning the mysteries of the early books of of the early chapters of Genesis, are repeated and fulfilled in him. Uh, I'll point out, for instance, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ sweats blood. Well, the curse that the that god imposes on adam is that by the sweat of his brow he will basically be able to uh make up a living be able to live well christ sweats like adam was supposed to sweat Um, another one that saint john points out is that when uh, christ was on the cross and he said that he thirsts a soldier dips a sponge in vinegar and brings it and saint john indicates that he brought it on a rod made out of hyssop well, hyssop is the bro- the, is the bush in which the, the ram was caught that, um, that Abraham sacrificed instead of Isaac. So, all these correspondences between the new and the old are very much present in the gospel. Our Lord sees himself as a new Jonah. Our Lord sees himself as Moses. Many, many parallels between the old and the new because Christ is recapitulating uh, the old so that he brings it to completion. On the way to Emmaus, he he reminded or taught the two um, pilgrims about all the passage in the Old Testament that pointed towards him. So that that notion is present uh, very clearly that the old points to the new and the new is the fulfillment of the old. But there is a little bit more in the idea of recapitulation. For St. Irenaeus, redemptive recapitulation is not simply Christ writing what went wrong, redoing what was supposed to be done, doing it right. Even before the world began, all men, and indeed all creation, were preordained, predestined for the incarnation of the Logos. In becoming man, Christ renews or recreates creation. Two ideas. The first one is that for St. Irenaeus... Incarnation was preordained even before the creation of the world. And two, when Christ became man, he renewed all of creation because he redid it in himself. That idea is very much present in the Gospel of St. John, which starts in the beginning and mirrors the first few chapters of the Gospel of St. John, mirror the first few chapters of Genesis. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we see that uh, Christ's whole life is a mystery recapitulation. All Jesus did, said, and suffered, had for its aim, restoring fallen man to his original vocation. Original vocation, that's the vocation of Adam. Restoring fallen man, allowing all of us to be able to do what Adam was supposed to do. So now you start to see that not only did Christ relive, if you will, or live anew the life that Adam was supposed to live, but he enables us to do the same. We'll come back to that in a minute. St. Irenaeus again. When Christ became incarnate and was made man, he recapitulated in himself the long history of mankind and procured for us a shortcut to salvation so that we, so that what we had lost in Adam, That is, being in the image and likeness of God, we might recover in Christ Jesus. For this reason, Christ experienced all the stages of life, thereby giving communion with God to all men. That also gives us a hint into why Christ lived a hidden life for 30 years with his his parents, with Our Lady and St. Joseph. Not only because he really enjoyed this life, but because he was recapitulating all the life that Adam was supposed to have lived in order to do it right. Alright. There are other passages in the Catechism that hint to recapitulation. CCC 6, passage 668 is one of them. I'm not going to go too deep into those. I'm just referring to them in case you would like to be able to cover them. Uh, And that's all I'm going to say about this for now. Um, Likewise, you can see uh, paragraph 2854, Um, this is a paragraph about the Our Father, and again it hints to the notion of recapitulation in Christ. Very good. Now we've sort of introduced this idea of recapitulation. I I think you may have an idea of what I mean by it, but it's not yet completely clear. It'll get clearer as we dive deeper into moral recapitulation. First, what is morality? We need to get this one clear. In the Catechism, paragraph 1762, the human person is ordered to beatitude by his deliberate acts. The passions or feelings he experiences can dispose him to it and contribute to it. 1765, there are many passions, the most fundamental passion is love, aroused by the attraction of the good. Love causes a desire for the absent good and the hope of obtaining it. This movement finds completion in the pleasure and joy of the good possessed. The apprehension of evil causes hatred, aversion, and fear of the impending evil. This movement ends in sadness at some present evil or in the anger that resists it. First, you may have a, I would say, tendency to think of morality as the actions you must take in order not to sin. We call this negative morality. Negative morality is not bad. It takes its name from the not, not to sin. Don't do this. Don't do that. That sort of thing. And negative morality is is good. It's needed. But it's it's not the end all and be all of morality. Morality is a positive, has a positive impetus. As you can see in paragraph 1762, the human person is ordered to beatitude. Here, beatitude does not mean the beatitudes in the gospel. Beatitude means happiness. The human person is ordered to happiness. And what is the purpose of morality? The purpose of morality is to make us happy. Therefore, morality is ordered to joy, to happiness. You live a moral life because you want to be happy. You don't live a moral life because you don't want to sin. Not sinning is not the end. It is a means to the end, which is beatitude, which is happiness. It's very important when we structure our language around morality, especially if you're teaching your children it's really important not to overemphasize the need of not sinning apart from joy, because otherwise you would, you would run the risk of presenting a very bleak and um, uninspiring goal for your kids. Um, the reason why we don't want to sin is because we want to be happy but there is more to be happy than not sinning. There is a positive aspect to it. And that's what morality is all about. That's really key. And you can see in 1765, the most fundamental passion is love aroused by the attraction of the good. Love is a passion. Love is an appetite. So uh, hunger is an appetite for food because food allows us to keep ourselves alive, to keep ourselves in this world alive love is an appetite for the good all right and then reason is an appetite for truth and you can think of it slightly differently truth is also strongly correlated strongly connected with what is beautiful so love is an appetite for what is beautiful and then reason is an appetite for what is true and true and beautiful are po- both are good. So that tells us then when it comes to morality that we are seeking both that which is beautiful and that which is true because there are one and the same. All right. So what is moral recapitulation? The recapitulation of man fallen in Adam is realized through renewal and grace and the final full restoration, the resurrection of the dead. Only they achieve this goal who are one in Christ. That is only those who have followed him in obedience. Moral recapitulation is when you and I recapitulate the life of Adam, but do it right. We cannot do it right on our own. We would have failed, like Adam did, but we can through grace. And grace is the means by which Christ enables us to live a life in imitation of him, instead of a life in imitation of Adam. So just as Christ recapitulated the life of Adam, we must recapitulate the life of Adam in ourselves. And like we said earlier, the scripture is, like St. Irenaeus' side, it's a series of mysteries that point to Christ. That is the Christological sense of scripture. The moral sense is that scripture is a series of mysteries that point to us. Or, said differently, scripture is a mirror of our soul. And we can use it to better understand ourselves and live a moral life. Here's the moral sense of scripture, which is taken from the spiritual sense in paragraph 117 of the Catechism. Thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. So back to this idea of mysteries. Signs and mysteries are synonymous the allegorical sense we acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in christ that's the sense that applies to christ the allegorical sense thus the crossing of the red sea is a sign or type of christ's victory and also of christian baptism the moral sense the events reported in scripture ought to lead us to act justly act justly is act morally And why do we want to act justly or morally so that we may attain beatitude? As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. So St. Paul is alluding to this by simply saying instruction, but there is more to it. We look at scripture in general as a pattern of our life. And then lastly, the anagogical sense, where we can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. So, the anagogical sense typically applies to the church and to the end times. These are the three senses of scripture, the three spiritual senses, which are built upon the literal sense. You can read more about these senses in the the catechism, beginning with paragraph 111. So, moral recapitulation. What is moral recapitulation then? Events reported in scripture ought to lead us to act justly. To act justly is to act morally. The act is ordained to the good and therefore to our beatitude. And just as Christ recapitulates in himself what Adam had left undone, so we who are his followers ought to recapitulate in us what Adam has done and what Christ has completed. The events of scripture are seen as a map or a pattern for our own life in Christ. So, for instance, here's one way to look at this. While in our mother's womb we are in Eden. When we are born, we are thrown out of Eden. Our adolescent years are spent in growth where we tend toward Christ and we move away from him, similar to what you see in the book of Genesis. And then we experience the flood when our childhood is taken away from us as we reach maturity. And you know, when you look back to your childhood, you know you can't go back. There is a chasm. That will not allow you to go back to the time of your childhood. So even if you go back and visit your high school where you studied, or your middle school, or the places where you played in the playground when you were little, you know that you're not in that same space because it feels completely differently when you see it as a grown-up when you live through it. In a similar way, the innocence of the early um, uh, years is often lost, and we we experience it differently when we're older. So then. And oftentimes what ends up happening is as we go through our teens and and in our early 20s, we go to Egypt and experience the pleasures of life. Then we become slaves to our desires. And then God meets us and awakens in us a desire for righteousness. Just as he sent Moses, he sent someone to us. Any one of us who has come back to the faith when we were older, we know that we had a Moses. We know that either God sent a book our way sent a family where we went and we saw how they lived uh, and a friend someone who played the role that Moses played to bring us back and so we uh, eventually we lead, he basically leads us into the desert why because we're leaving behind this life of pleasure and now we're simplifying we are focusing on the things of God so we, uh, we wander in the desert. We bump into things. We get it wrong. Some of us may have started by essentially being a, um, being a Protestant and then slowly migrated to the fullness of the church. Uh, some may have had you know, issues with some teachings of the church and it took them a while to get on board with everything. So you know how that journey is. It's, it's bumpy. And expect it to be because this is what the scripture is showing us. It's a bumpy journey. But then we eventually enter the promised land, and what do we find? Strife. So we enter the church, and then what do we find? Scandals and problems, and and uh, you know the life of the parish is not the way it's supposed to be. We seem to be moving one step forward and two steps back. And worried about our kids and how they're going to grow up, and the rest of it. And those struggles typically lead us to encounter christ in a more meaningful and deeper way our life is spiritualized and i don't mean it the wrong way i don't mean it like we're spiritual not religious that sort of thing i mean it that we begin to truly deepen our faith and take it far more seriously than we've done before and when we do that christ hands us a cross now we reach maturity. So we carry our cross to Calvary, we die and we are reborn in him who are divinized. You can see now scripture as a plan of life for all of us. That's the fundamental notion of recapitulation in scripture. You look at it as a plan of life and you start to pattern your life against it. And you start to look at yourself and go, where am I right now? Am I Am I in Eden? Am I in the early years of Genesis? Am I in the wilderness? have I crossed the Jordan where am I and it's never linear we tend to move forward and move back and we fall and we get up and we continue but generally speaking these are the way this is one way that is very fruitful for us to read scripture and understand our lives in the light of scripture and that's what I'm going to do with the rest of this talk i'm going to look at the garden as a pattern for our soul meaning as a as a method to better understand our soul. Think of it as a deeper examination of conscience, if you will, that is structured around the, the garden. So what are the elements of the garden? What's in the garden? Well, there are trees, no animals, and most of the trees bear fruits. Those are your virtues, right? They're standing still and they're bearing fruits. Animals imply movement, uh, dynamism, Whereas trees grow slowly and noticeably and they produce fruits. They're more amenable to as a as a as a representation of virtues. Then there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The tree of life is that principle by which God animates us. So at the center of our soul is divine life, without which we would be dead. And then the tree of knowledge of good and evil is really. It speaks to our ability to know what is right what is wrong and then we have two choices we can either know what is right and what is wrong according to God's will and the teaching of his church or we can um, think we know what is right and what is wrong according to ourselves and that's the fundamental choice we have to make and we have to make it every day then Adam is brought into the garden to garden till and then from him, Eve is created, and they're united into the garden. So we're not going to look at Adam and Eve and as, as, as in, in a sort of a historical context. We're going to look at them as principles within our souls. And I'll explain how that works a little later. So let's begin here. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. And you see the names of the four rivers. A few observations. Like I said earlier, the spiritual senses build on top of the literal sense. So we must understand what the original author intended by this text. And certainly we should not misunderstand it. So here's a common misunderstanding that happens when reading this passage. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. The garden is not Eden. So when we say the garden of Eden, it's like saying the garden of Chicago. There is one garden in Chicago, and that's it. But the garden is not Chicago. And likewise here, the garden is not Eden. It is in a region known as Eden in the east. All right. Now, I'll point out that Eden is translated in the Vulcate as Paradisios, which comes from the Persian peridesa, mean, which means an enclosed park. Potentially a pleasure ground. So, an enclosed park. And from that, it uh, became this idea of, of, of paradise. But so, the, the garden is a, if you will, points to heaven, but it's certainly not paradise. Like, it's not this perfect place, right? It is a garden, and we were meant to work it. So, likewise, apologies for my phone. Here we go. Likewise, uh, when you think about your soul, it is not heaven. It is a place where you meet God, where God is present, but you're supposed to work it, work at it. And we'll get to that. Um, the other thing i point out is that this business of in the east, in the Hebrew, Mikadem, is the word that is used and you also mean a temporal primeval times, which indicated that it existed before, uh, if you will, before man's creation and before the garden. So the, the intent here is that Eden existed before man was created and before the garden was created. So it doesn't necessarily be mean geographically, but it could also mean temporally. All right. So, the Lord God planted the garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Uh, this should tell you something about our relationship with God. And this, is, this verse, verse 8, is so, is so critical to our entire Christian life. The Lord God planted the garden, and he put the man whom he had formed. There was no discussion. There was no, let's get together and talk about it. Let me ask you what you think. God placed the man whom he had formed without asking him his opinion. And in many ways, God forms your soul without asking you anything because you don't exist when he forms your soul. And God is the one who decides which talents you will receive. Without asking you anything. And many of us struggle with that. That struggle is actually connected with this idea of why does God allow evil in the world? Why does God didn't make me taller, thinner, um, smarter, better, good looking? On and on it goes. Because it is about God's glory, not about ours. That's the fundamental principle here it's about god's glory not mine and it's really difficult for us to accept that but we'll get to that we'll get deeper into that later and out of the ground the lord god made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food so within your soul there are these principles there are your imagination your reason your will your um, passions which are meant To be pleasant to the sight and good for food, right? The trees, right? Pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. If the trees represent virtues, then every virtue should be pleasant to the sight and good for food. What does that mean? It means that what you present, what the virtue produces, should be both pleasant and good for others. So, your soul isn't just for yourself. It is a means by which God is going to reach others. And the more you cultivate your soul, the more God will be able to use you to reach others. And then the tree of life, like we said, in the midst of the garden, because it is the principle of life. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, this knowledge of good and evil, let me say a few words about this. In the second book of Samuel, chapter 14, verse 17, we read, For my Lord, the King, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And also in Genesis, chapter 3, verse uh, verse 5, and then 22. The knowledge of good and evil is a divine characteristic. And the last thing I'll point out is that good and bad or good and evil occur in this form once more and only once more in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39. And it says, moreover, your little ones who you said would be carried off, your children who do not yet know good from bad. So not to know good from bad is to be innocent, not to have attained the age of responsibility, reason. So it hints at the capacity to make independent judgments concerning human welfare. So, the idea here when God told Adam that he's, he and Adam and Eve are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on their own independently, is that so they do not end up in a situation where they make independent judgments aside apart from God. And that is hardening of the heart when you do that. God, in most cases, is Not as upset when we commit a sin than when we refuse to admit that we committed a sin. What upset God in in the actions of Adam and Eve was less the fact that they ate from the tree, but they refused to repent and refused to ask for forgiveness. Uh, that, That hardness of heart, the fact that we are unwilling to recognize that we're wrong, is something that led our lord to mention quite often the sin of hypocrisy and we'll talk more about hypocrisy in the next in in a follow-up to this the sin of hypocrisy is a big deal okay for now we have a garden it's enclosed and it has trees which are producing fruits and there's a tree of life and a tree of good and evil and then a river flowed out of Eden. So like we said, Eden is a region that is wider than the garden. The river, the source of the river is in Eden, not in the garden. It flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So the source of life, like the tree of life, the source of life, that what irrigates everything is outside of us and it is in God and it flows from God into our soul. And there it divided and became four rivers. Inside the garden, it divided and became four rivers. So four, the number of four is a number of totality. It is all encompassing, it's all mankind. Why? Because to the Hebrews and to others as well, the earth was seen as an altar. It's not that they thought of the earth to be flat. They saw it more as an altar where we offer sacrifice. So in Genesis, the patriarchs offered sacrifice everywhere. And the idea, therefore, is that the earth is a sort of an altar. And as you know, an altar has four corners. And hence, the four corners came to mean the whole, the totality of earth. So this is essentially. Um, watering everyone so what is what's the app implication implication is that god's graces flow into our soul and from there they're supposed to multiply so that we can reach others that's in a fundamental sense the two uh the greatest two commandments love of god and the love of neighbor So love of God is us looking towards the source. And then love of neighbor is us looking towards those four rivers that are dividing to water the rest of the world. Okay. Now let's jump to Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 1 through 9. In the eleventh year in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? So it's it's essentially an oracle present, pronounced against a Pharaoh, but there's something really interesting and, and I want to point out to you. Behold, I will liken you to a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and forest shade and of great height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its river flow round the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the forest. See the same analogy, the same idea, you have one, tr- one river that comes and it breaks into streams and it waters the trees of the forest. That's who Pharaoh is supposed to be. That's who we're supposed to be. So it towered high above all the trees of the forest. It, its bows grew large and its branches long from abundant water and its shoots all the birds of the air made their nests in its boughs, under its branches all the beasts of the field brought forth their young and under its shadow dwelt all great nations you see how again the idea that um one tree is able to protect and nourish the multitude same idea same principle it was beautiful in its greatness in the length of its branches for its roots were down to abundant waters Now, the cedars in the garden of God, so the cedars in the garden of God, not all trees were fruit trees. Well, actually, the cedar is a tree that bears fruit. So I have to correct myself, but it's not the kind of fruit that you can... Well, anyway, the fruit. Anyway, let it be. um, Could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. The plain trees were as nothing compared with its branches, no tree in the garden of God was like it's, it was like it in beauty. So again, the garden was not heaven. It was a garden with specific trees planted into it and not the most beautiful trees. So when God creates your soul and mine, it may not contain the greatest virtues, the greatest talents. Because it's not about us, it's about him. That's a really hard lesson for all of us to learn, but it's fundamental. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. And we're talking about the cedar in Lebanon. That's not the garden. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Interesting, envy entered the garden so envy enters our soul what is envy envy is always sinful envy is the desire to destroy what someone else has what my neighbor has my neighbor has a a car that i envy i want to destroy it. jealousy is sometimes a sin sometimes not it's desire to to possess what my my neighbor has my neighbor has a beautiful car i'm going to go buy another one am i going to buy the same so but so that's not necessarily a good thing but if my neighbor is very meek and humble and i desire to do the same i'm going to work to be meek and humble that's a good jealousy so the point is in the garden there were already the seeds if you will to the ability of sinning and we'll talk i'll I'll show you that in a minute but so so your soul is not going to um produce the right set of virtues if you put it on autopilot if you think that you're going to get to heaven, you're going to get to beauty and you're going to get to goodness and be happy by putting your soul on autopilot and never looking inward. Something is lurking in the dark and that's not that's even without without bringing in the devil. Okay. By the way, this these are a couple of pictures of the cedars in Lebanon. Um Apparently it's the only tree where the fruits grow upward, not downward. And we call it the praying tree because of the way it opens up. So this big thing in the middle is a cedar. The trees on the side are pine trees. You can see the difference. They're not like the cedars here in the United States. I just wanted to give you a visual to understand what, you know, why this imagery was used in the scriptures. Okay. Let's go now to Ezekiel 31, 16, 18. This is in the same chapter a little further. I will make the nations quake at the sound of its fall when i cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit and all the trees of eden the choice and best of lebanon all the drink water all that drink water will be comforted in the netherworld so again you see how there's this idea of going into the netherworld for the trees of eden Uh, it was a region that was there and then it passed on it it was no longer there They also shall go down to Sheol with it, to those who are slain by the sword. Yea, those who dwell under its shadow among the nations shall perish. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the netherworld. So your soul can be lost. Like this text is clearly saying. why would it be lost because it stops producing fruit this imagery of yielding fruits is something that our lord uses continuously in the gospels and it's an echo of the garden but it's not an echo we pay attention to because we're not familiar if you will this application of the garden to our soul so when we hear the lord says i am the vine you're the branches right And then he asks us to stay connected to him so we can yield fruits. This idea of yielding fruit is an echo from the garden. All right. Now, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till and keep. Till and keep. Till is to liven it, to make sure that the trees are receiving the nutrients they need in order to grow. So the same way you and I are supposed to till our soul. To lighten it so that the virtues can grow in our soul. Keep it. Keep it is guarded. It's not just keeping as in make sure it stays there. It's protected. And protected from whom? Well, from the devil. And notice when God took Adam and put him there, he didn't tell him you'll work five days and then you get the weekend off. It's seven days. That suggests that you and I have to work at our soul every day it is a it is our primary responsibility and the lord god commanded the man saying you may freely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge and evil you shall not eat I already talked to you about this for if you eat you shall die okay and then he makes eve and i'm not going to go through all of this the only thing i'll mention is that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed um, if you think of the man and his wife as sort of principles in our soul, reason, will, imagination, passion, then you read this uh, verse and you understand that those, those faculties of our soul must all work in peace. There ought not to be strife between our faculties. And we know we know that that is not achieved easily. In fact, it's impossible to achieve without a supernatural intervention of our Lord. So it is yet incumbent upon us to work so that what we what we desire, what our passions are after, what our imagination is conceiving, what our reason is focused on, and what our will is going after are all converging on that which is beautiful, that which is true, because that is the our beatitude that is the end that God wishes for us. All right. Now, let's go to Ezekiel again chapter 28, verse 12 through 19. Here, our Lord is asking him to to raise a lamentation on the king of Tyre. But as you will see, it doesn't seem that he's really talking about the human king of Tyre. Um, because of the way the text is structured. In, in, instead, it looks like he was really talking about the devil. So, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So again, it's, it's almost impossible to think of a man reaching that kind of height. You are in Eden. That's the other thing. The king of Tyre was never in Eden. The garden of God. So you're in Eden. I'm sorry, I said the garden, but you're in Eden as in the, Eden, the region of Eden, the garden of God. He adds the garden of God. So there you go. Every precious stone was your covering. Carnelian, topaz, and jasper, chrysolite, beryl, and onyx, sapphire, carbuncle, and emerald, and wrote, wrote in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. When anointed guardian cherub I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You can see this is not language that apply easily to a man. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And... In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And the garden sheriff drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. And you remember that God placed a cherub sh- and a, a sword to guard the uh, the, um, uh, the garden. And verse 17 is really revealing. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So here we have an indication, a hint as to what was um, Satan's original sin, his sin, not original sin, his sin. His heart grew proud because of his beauty and he corrupted him, his wisdom for the sake of his splendor. So... Seeing how beautiful he is, he started to worship himself instead of worshiping God. And that can be, uh, you can see that that can be achieved without uh, having, if you will, without having someone else sinning before you. You can be the perfect being. And if you take your eyes away from God and focus it on you, it's enough. What does that mean? It means you can live a life without committing any other sin and still fall like Satan. Unless you're constantly focused on the glory of God and not yours, unless you're constantly tilling this garden and working on the salvation by by developing and guarding your virtues, you can fall. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. But the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade you profane your sanctuaries. So I brought forth fire, etc., etc. So that is a passage that I thought is interesting because it reveals to us some things about uh, how Satan was before he fell, why he fell, and also some things about our own soul that we have to be very careful uh, to uh, protect and guard from these tendencies. From pride. That's why pride, by the way, also is called the root of all evil, because you can see it was the one um, uh, sin that can be that can sprout where there is no sin. So it's enough to think I am glorious, it's enough to think I am good, it's enough to think I am this or that or the other for sin to sprout. The only defense we have against this is to keep our eyes focused on God and to and to to think to ourselves, which is what Saint Paul admonishes us to do, everything for the greater glory of God, everything for the greater glory of God. Okay. By the way, these um, I just going to mention this in passing. On the left-hand side in this table, you see the list of. Precious stones that are mentioned in Ezekiel 28. And on the right hand side, the breastplate, I wrote breastplate, it's actually the breastplate of the high priest in Ezekiel 28 had 12 precious stones. And I've, ind- I've indicated them um, between these brackets, I've indicated the location of those stones, whether it's on, so there were. Four rows of three stones each. Four times three is twelve. Four rows of three stones each. And I've indicated which row and which column, if you will, by the positioning of the number. Left, middle, or right. And what's really interesting is that the missing three are all on the third row. So In other words, the precious stones of the third row on the breastplate of the high priest are missing from the stones that are mentioned that um, Satan possessed. These stones obviously reflect uh, qualities, and two things. One, it, it, it shows us how the angels are of the priestly order, but there was something missing. It also tells us that in God's eyes, a priest is, in one sense, more exalted than angels. Which is which? Which helps us to understand a little bit better the the that obscure uh, statement that Saint Paul makes when he says, "Don't you know we are to judge angels?" The priestly order is higher because it is united to Christ, and yet uh, at the same time the angels are supposed to be participating in that priestly order. Hence, for instance, in the apparition of Fatima, the angel of Fatima appeared and then gave communion to the children, acting in a sense as a priest. So I thought I'd just mention this, it's not germane to my talk, but um, I couldn't just not mention it. Alright, again, Ezekiel 47, 1, 12. Before I get into this, let me tell you why I'm quoting from Ezekiel uh, chapter 47. Because up to this point, I've been talking about the soul. In the natural order, the natural order of the soul is that there are virtues that God gives everyone. There is the life of, of uh, there is a tree of life that keeps, sustains the soul, keeps it alive, and then the ability to judge what is right and what is wrong. And it's our choice to decide to stick to the way God thinks about stuff, or not. That's the natural order. But it's a supernatural order. Meaning that when God imbues the soul with um, the gift of baptism, something changed. And then we get a glimpse of what that is in Ezekiel chapter 47. In this passage, Ezekiel is brought by uh, the angel to the temple. And the temple, this temple that Ezekiel is describing, is actually the second temple, the one by Ezra and Nehemiah. There are three temples in the uh, history of Israel, one built by Solomon, the third built by uh, Herod, and you're familiar with both. The second, maybe the one that you're not as familiar with, it's the one that was built by and Nehemia, Ezra and Nehemiah Nehemia, when they came back from exile, from uh, Persia. And that temple was very modest, and yet it is the the, the the most glorious of the three, with the description that Ezekiel gives. And here, in 47, the angel is showing him um, and imp- showing him what is going on with the temple. And he's and the text says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. So from the temple, it faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So if you if you're standing and looking at the sun you're looking eastward when you do that south is at your right so the water is flowing from the right side of the temple towards the back if you will then he brought me out by way of the north gate so we went from the left because water issuing from the right and so they walk on dry land from the left and let me round on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east so they went to the back and the water was coming out on the south side. Okay. Going on eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. The man is the angel, by the way. He measured a thousand cubits. It's about 1800 feet. And then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. So basically they went 1800 feet and the water was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand Again, 1,800 feet, and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Another 1,800 feet, and the water water came up to the loins, so basically covering the legs. And he measured a 1,000, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. Okay. There is only one source of this water, it's coming from the temple. So this is kind of paradoxical you would think that the water is deepest at the source as it's coming out because it's flowing and then it you know it becomes shallower in rivers rivers have tributaries meaning other sources dumping into them and that's why they can become deeper and bigger further they are from the source but here there's only one source only one where is that water coming from That's really important. Remember the multiplication of the loaves, how a few loaves turn into many. We have a multiplication of the water here. Where is that water coming from? That's coming up from our souls. So what God... So first, the water is coming from the temple. What's the implication? The temple is a symbol of the church. So the water flows out from the church. So the flow of grace has come to us from the altar at mass. And it's supposed to come out and it waters us. And then when it waters us, it waters the world and the water becomes deeper. So when it waters the world, what happens? Continuation. As I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees. Here we go. The same imagery used in Genesis. Talk about the garden is used here. Trees. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, again, flowing to the east, and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. Okay. The sea was, in in the Old Testament, is an image of the world. The folks who are non-Jew. Those who do not believe in God. The sea is an image of chaos. The land is an image of order because things stay put. The sea, everything moves. And the fact that the the sea has salt in it means you cannot use that water to water a garden. Everything will die. Now the water is becoming fresh the implication is that the world is being converted that's the whole idea god set up the church to convert the world and bring everyone to salvation whatever the river goes every living creature which swarms will live so then you can see life for everyone and there will be very many fish so the multiplication of the fish the miracle of multiplication of the fish see this is this is Anyone who knew scripture will think about this passage here. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. So it freshens the water of the sea and therefore converts the world. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from En Gedi to En Gelim. I'm not going to get too deep into this. It's beautiful. It has everything to do with the river Jordan. And so there's connection with the baptism of Christ, but I don't have time for this. It would be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, think of the Gospel of Saint John when our Lord uh, was risen and he um, and they meet him uh, in Galilee and there were 147 148 fish in the net, which is a number of nations at a time. So its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps, oh, by the way, the interesting thing that I'll point out here is that En and Engel, Engeliam are on the um, shores of the Dead Sea. There's nothing in the Dead Sea. But here, it fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. So, that which did not give life, will give life when the water of the temple reaches it. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So the supernatural life essentially turns our souls into means by which God reaches the multitude, means by which God reaches those who need to be converted, need to be saved but only if our soul is being watered, and only if we're tilling and guarding. So to the degree that we're working on ourselves, to that degree we're saving the world. I'll repeat that. To the degree that we are working on ourselves, to that degree we are saving the world. You can't give the world what you don't have. I believe it was St. Teresa of Avila who did one thing. I don't remember what it was, but it may not be her. So don't quote me on this, but a saint. And the Lord said, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it's a female saint. And he told her, my daughter, because you've done this, and it was an interior movement of her soul, because you've done this, I released 10,000 souls from purgatory. She's working on herself. As a result, 10,000 souls from purgatory were released. That is aspect of everything. You have issues with your with your children, you have issues with your in-laws, you have issues with your family, you have something is not working right. Whatever the case may be, take it as an indication that it's something you need to work on. If you start thinking this way, if you start seeing all the frustrations in your life as a way in which the, the Lord is telling you, there's something I want you to work on, your entire outlook on life changes. Recapitulation becomes... The center fold of your life, and you start to look at everything around you as signs pointing inwardly. Signs pointing inwardly. So instead of you being outwardly focused, you start to become truly inwardly focused. And that is the fundamental message of this whole passage when we look at the garden as a pattern of our soul. I'll end this by showing you, by, by, by showing how this helped explain one passage in the scriptures that are sort of really difficult for people to understand and as in Matthew chapter 15 21 through 28 and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon and behold a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried have mercy on me O Lord son of David my daughter is severely possessed by a demon but he did not answer her a word and his disciples came and begged him saying send her away for she's crying after us he answered I I, not you, I, was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By implication, you are going to be sent to everybody else." But she she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not fair, good, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith be done to done for you as you desire." And her daughter was healed instantly. This is baffling. It baffles so many people. First of all, many commentators, especially modern ones, will tell you, oh, well, you know, because Jesus is obviously calling her a dog, and oh, a man is calling a woman a dog. You know, God forbid that our Lord would do something like that. Uh, therefore, you know, Jesus was a man of his times, and he was affected by it culturally. You'll hear that kind of nonsense. It's because they don't understand. They don't understand the passage here. First of all, Genesis 9, verse 20 through 27. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 through 27. Noah cursed Canaan. As a result, because she's a Canaanite woman, she's under a curse. And to the disciples, she's under the curse, so go away. There's nothing can be done for you. No one can help you. You're under a curse. Okay. Now, if you think about it, th- th- this whole interaction is sort of weird. Um, she kneels before him and she asks for his help. Now, he says, It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, even the dogs and eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. All right, he said one thing. She answered very gracefully and saying, And continuing the image, all right, but you don't have to feed me, but I can eat from the crumbs that fall to the ground. And there seems to be a leap from this short exchange to Jesus praising her faith. What is going on? What is going on is Ezekiel, the chapter I just read to you, the chapter in the, uh, the passage in Ezekiel 27. That's what's going on. What is Jesus saying? One, uh, it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It is not fair to take the Eucharist and give it to those who are not Catholic. Dogs, by the way, to us, it sounds very insulting, but you have to understand it in the context of the times. Dogs were impure animals, or not impure, unclean. They were unclean animals. Okay. And you can go back to Leviticus to see that they were part of the unclean animals. No uh, self-respecting Hebrew would have a dog. Okay? That's why shepherds were not clean. They had dogs. Okay. Dogs were unclean. So what is he saying? It is not right to give that which belongs to those who are clean to someone who is unclean. That's what he's saying. And that's the truth. I can't give those graces that belong to those who are clean to someone who is not. The woman says something quite extraordinary. She's basically saying, Yes, Lord, but that river that flows from under the garden, from under the threshold of the temple, waters lots of trees which are not in the temple, and those trees bear fruit. She's saying Yes, Lord. Catholics are the only ones who are supposed, and Orthodox are the only ones who are supposed to receive the Eucharist. That's the children, right? Eating at the table. But the river is supposed to divide into their souls, and they're supposed to feed the world. And I would be the recipient. Of what they're supposed to give me. Now you see the irony in that statement compared to, send her away for she is crying after us. They have no clue. No clue. They don't understand what? Ecclesiology. The nature and structure and purpose of the church. They don't get it. Send her away, they're going after her. She's a Canaanite. Ah, ah, ah. Jesus says I was sent only to the Lost Ship to the house of Israel. Yes. He was sent to establish the church. You are going to be sent to everybody else. So you understand now why Jesus the woman by saying great is your faith by the way faith is a faculty of reason it has to do with understanding faith is not faith is not an act of the will you don't have to strain to have faith you have to understand it's only when you understand that your faith increases now hope and charity are acts of the will but faith is act of the reason how great is your faith is how great is your supernatural understanding of the church that I'm about to found. That's why her faith is so great. I hope this helps you better understand how this text works. And notice, be it done for you as you desire. So when your faith grows, when you understand what God wants, and when you understand what God wants in your life, then what you ask will be given. That's how it works. Okay, so by way of a recap, the garden is an orchard. It has trees that produces fruits and most of the fruits are super nat- are natural, but some are supernatural. And the rivers, one river comes in and four comes out. That's the structure of your soul. And then Adam and Eve are your faculties which are all united in tilling this garden. That is the fundamental structure of the soul, and that's what we are supposed to work on. So I hope that in the season of Lent, you really take time to a, develop a deeper examination of conscience, that you understand what kind of trees are in your soul, meaning what are your leading virtues. You understand the trees that maybe need work, the ones where th- th- these are the ones that represent your vices that you need to work on. And then you set out to really work on your soul for beauty and for joy and knowing that through that work, you can reach the multitude. God bless you and I'll see you next time.